You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. When I started in real estate investing, I didn't meet a lot of women on the job site. And I certainly didn't meet a lot of women who were doing the renovations themselves. But our guest today did just that. And today, her hard work has paid off because she is a big-time real estate boss lady. I'm Kathy Fedke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. As a single mom, Kelly Stumphauser bought a fixer-upper for $46,000 and moved into it with her three young kids while she was renovating. She was making about $13,000 at the time. Now, just a decade later, she runs a large renovation and property management company and has been featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for her success. And she's here with us today on The Real Well Show. So Kelly, welcome back. Thanks, Kathy. You know, I've known you for years, but I didn't really know your story. And then I heard little bits, bits and pieces of it. And I thought, I've got to have you on here to inspire <laughs> so many people. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So let's start with kind of going back to <laughs> when you started in real estate. What was your life like? Yeah. So I got started in the early 2000s. I, um, I quit my corporate job and I just had my first um, first child, my daughter. And I was a stay-at-home mom for all of about two or three weeks. And uh, you and I have similar personalities, I think. Pretty type A. Um, <laughs> so I was <laughs> immediately looking for some, some brain food. And um, I had always been interested in real estate. And I answered an ad in the newspaper. If that dates me at all, right? Um, there was a real estate investor who was looking for a bird dog. And I'm sure your, most of your listeners know what a bird dog is, but it's not a very glamorous position. You basically drive around, you look for distressed properties. Um, so I did that and I, I kind of did it really not for the money, but more in exchange for what he knew. Because mm -hmm. at that time to hire a, an investor guru to like consult with you was like way too much money that I didn't have at the time. And so that's how I got my start. I used to put my daughter, Lily, in a car seat and drive around town while she napped and look for distressed properties for this investor. And I would borrow all of his like DVDs and I would go home and I'd listen to Ron LeGrand and I'd figure out how to underwrite properties. There was a lady back then. I don't know if she's still around. Her name is Robin Thompson. Do you remember her? She was the oh, rehab queen. Yeah. Rehab queen. Is that it? rehab queen I think is what she used to call herself yeah. and I mean I can remember like you know making snacks and I'd be like looking at the tv like oh that's what an electrical panel is that's what a double tap is right <laughs> so, like that's how I was teaching myself and um I started buying rental properties you know a couple years later maybe and then the market really took off as you know like 2004 2005 was like peaking and I decided I wanted to flip um, by then I'd had my second child. I had three kids in under six years. So it was, um, I had two kids and I was a DIY flipper back then. So I would, you know, I'd sub out the big trade stuff, but I would be up on the cabinets painting and caulking and moving rocks around for hardscape. And with my little kids in tow, you know, one would be in a car seat, one would be on a blanket playing with their little Fisher Price toys. And, um, and I, and I loved it and I did pretty well. I mean, for being a DIY and having like pretty limited knowledge at that time. Um, but then by the time I had my third, it was just too much. I mean, I was still involved a little bit, you know, I still had my hands and I was still working with that investor, helping him out, but 
it was just, it was just too much. And my husband at the time traveled and, um, I was pretty overwhelmed. And then unfortunately, when our, when our kids were really little, they were two, four and six, um, I went through a divorce. So there was a span that I really wasn't working. I think that I had maybe done a couple small transactions. My, my income was $13,000 the year that, um, we separated. And I remember thinking, yeah, I've always had this element of like, I don't want to trade my time for money. I don't want someone to take me from my children. I don't want to be one of those women that is thrust into a situation where I'm dropping my child off at 7am at daycare. And I don't see them again for nine hours. Anymore. What am I going to do? So there was a house that was a prospect at the time that I was considering flipping. And it was a disaster. Like, <laughs> epic disaster. And I decided to move in. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going to buy it cheap for cash, put some money in savings, and I'm going to fix it up. And I'm going to keep my overhead super low. And I'm going to figure it out. And um, so that house, it was, uh, you know, when I moved in, we had inoperable plumbing and all kinds of electrical issues. I think it was one of the oldest houses in our town. It was built in like 1880, if that gives you context. <laughs> My kids were convinced it was haunted. And like, <laughs> you know, it was like a period of like a lot of stress, but a lot of growth for me too. Um, you know this, like it's usually yeah. the stuff that's the most trying that just um, teaches you what you're made of. And um, that was that period of time for me. Um, so I got my real estate license and this is around the time I met you guys. Um, I decided if I got my real estate license, I really didn't have the capital to do any more of my own flips, you know, not being married and not really having any kind of, um, income to, for a bank to underwrite to. So that if I get my real estate license, I can help other investors at least, right. You know, I know what to look for in a property and I, I know about running them and I know about rehabbing them. And so I started doing that. That was during the crash. And that's when I met you guys, obviously. So you, you guys had found Cleveland and, and, uh, and I was working with a Burr provider, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's go back to um, kind of your first deal. You, you, yeah. How did you get the money? This is when you were first, you were still married when you did your first flip? I was. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, for the you California. Yeah. How did you yeah. Well, I was, I, you know, I was married and um, my husband at the time had a great job, but you have to remember this is early 2000s and this is in Lorain County. So like a way West suburb of Cleveland. And we were buying properties for $22,000, $23,000. And, <laughs> and that's back when you could buy a property and, you know, add value and put a tenant in. I'd say you'd be all into a property back then for forty dollars to $45,000. And the rent would be maybe seven fifty, and then you just do a cash out refi and do it again and again and again. Um, so really, you just needed to have a little bit of seed money back then to get a rental portfolio started. And there wasn't as much competition, maybe. No, no, not not as much. Um, certainly by mid two thousands, you know there was there was quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but same thing with the flips. I mean, by then I built up a little. Um, rental portfolio. And I think this is going way back, but I bet the first flip that I bought was maybe 35, 40,000. 
Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it was mostly sweat equity that I put into it. I mean, I, I probably subbed a few things out, but maybe another $10,000 in, in work, but you mostly doing it uh, yourself. Yeah. Back then. And I'm not sure when YouTube came out, I know a lot of people get their instruction. It's on uh, U- the university of YouTube. Where were you getting your information? That was all, you know, when I mentioned that investor that I worked for and just borrowing his materials. And then I just became obsessed. Like anybody and everybody that I knew that was in real estate investing, I would just, hey, can I tag along for the day? Hey, you have five minutes. Can I ask you a question? Can I take you to lunch? I wish there was YouTube back then. (laughs) I I wish. I I tell people like there's so much access to information now that there just wasn't that. I mean, um, I did a lot of reading and I made a lot of mistakes. That's probably where I've, you know, gotten the most of my experiences from making years and years of mistakes, which I'm still making all these houses later. (laughs) Well, you know, when I met you, it was during the downturn because Mm -hmm. I, I knew Cleveland was cheap again, right? It was so cheap. And a lot of people were afraid of Cleveland. There were all those articles. Do you remember the articles that made national headline news, like that uh, that the whole town was foreclosed or something? Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember. I had to do a lot of selling. <laughs> it, and you know, to me, that just smelled like money. You know, a whole yep. town foreclosed one after the other. So. You know, I would bring busloads of investors. It's like, hey, if we can buy the whole town, we can fix it up and improve the values. It's tough if you just buy one property in an area that's all distressed. But, you know, we came in in numbers. So you, I met you and I remember (laughs) thinking, man, she knows a lot about about construction. I had been pretty much my, me and all the guys, right. At that time, everybody I met was, uh, you know, they were contractors and mostly male. So I, I met you and you had your, you know, beautiful hair and curls and (laughs) and your lipstick and, and you're telling us, um, how a water heater works in in Cleveland. I just thought, amazing. (laughs) Like, I don't know how it works. Tell me how it works. And, and, you knew all, you know, when to replace it and when not to, and how to really push rents and, and uh, keep your expenses down, but keep rents up. And it was just, you just had so much knowledge. I was just floored. I was so excited um, that we could, you know, work with you and you could help uh, our investors buy stuff. Uh, and for me, it, you know, I know that the articles were were scary because I mean, Cleveland, there were parts of Cleveland that were definitely seriously distressed, but only only parts right and yeah and it was and it was still thriving with um you know the medical community medical growth and and universities and and so much was still happening in other areas that was overlooked but um so you have as a woman you've learned a lot about construction and you're still learning um, there, I think all of us, whether you're male or female, there's a lot of management of your contractors, right? Um, and it's confusing and you can really get burned. So what are some of the things you've learned from managing contractors? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Where do you start? <laughs> so much. Uh, how much time do you have? Um, you know, I think like vetting people is so, so important. Um, doing 
really good background checks, uh, talking to people that they've worked for before, making sure that they carry insurance, making sure your construction agreements are tight, like really invest the time you're going to put money into construction, especially in the Midwest, as you know, our housing inventory is really old and um, the renovations are pretty substantial. They're expensive. So if you're going to go ahead and spend that kind of money on construction, spend a few hundred bucks to make sure a lawyer looks at your construction agreement and that it's tight. And, um, you know, I would say be very, very careful with your draw system. You know, you don't want to give too much money out front. Um, we learned the hard way to control materials because if you're giving out a big giant draw up front and somebody's doing labor and materials, like that's how much money you could literally kiss goodbye out of your, your project. And that's, that can be a, a death blow. Um, what do you mean? What, what do you mean by that? If they just meaning like what you can control, um, you know, for materials. So if we're controlling materials and we're only paying labor, that's that much less that we're paying directly to the contractor versus oh. having them control the materials. Um, Giving them the money to buy materials, but then they split and leave town and you don't, you get nothing. Right. And, or, you know, you're looking for, God forbid, it falls apart and you're looking for some sort of accounting. And just as a general rule, what I've found, and you know, I hate to like, make blanket assumptions or stereotype, but generally contractors, general contractors, subcontractors, they're not business people. So they don't always have great systems in place. Um, you know, accounting and invoicing and paying subs and um, estimating and all of that. So, and then inspections, like inspections of work, um, always holding money back at the end of a project um, for a final walkthrough list goes on. I mean, checking to make sure lien waivers and making sure they're pulling permits. I mean, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. It's probably the, the most exposure and the biggest piece of management. Well, at least during the process, obviously property management on the back end is a whole nother story, but yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Woo. Okay. So if somebody were trying to manage contractors from out of state, they might be able to find great deals in Cleveland. Well, harder to do these days, right? But if they tried, they might find a, a good property and then they just want to manage a contractor from a distance. Uh, I mean, it sounds like, first of all, don't do that. That sounds really dangerous. But but um, background checks, I mean, what do you think even for something like that, for a small remodel, you should still do a background check? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, it, I think it depends on like when you say small remodel, I always joke, like I've never met a small re remodel in Cleveland, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. too, but I haven't met one. Um, but yeah, definitely background checks. I mean, we've found out, obviously people have different LLCs and they go by different names. And I mean, I've seen so many different scenarios um, where had I known, you know, I would never have had any dealings with with that particular contractor and references are really important i mean a lot of times what we see out here is they'll be working on multiple projects and whether it's intentional or not generally they've budgeted incorrectly and so they're moving money around from one job to the next and it mm -hmm. may not be your job it might be joe smith's job and so suddenly some of your rehab funds and or your materials are moving to another job 
So I think that due diligence is so important and I would highly recommend that somebody do it before they purchase a property, like, because mm-hmm. it's going to take some time to identify that person and do your background checks and get all your docs in place. And I like having a boots on the ground. I mean, if you can find a really trustworthy GC, great. Um, otherwise you really need a boots on the ground person like myself. That's who I was for you guys before I, you know, did full turnkey. Um, if you can find someone like that and incentivize them in some way that they're, they're your eyes and your ears in whatever location you're trying to, um, you're trying to remodel in that you're better off for it. Now you worked for a company years ago when you were kind of learning the business that mm-hmm. imploded what were yeah. some of the things you learned from that experience i think it's really important for investors to know how to vet um you know a, a renovation team of turnkey provider um because it's sure. so simple but yeah what did you learn from the inner workings of that company a lot um <laughs> one you know the burr model is valuable but it really depends on how it is um, constructed. Mm-hmm. I don't like the theory where in the Burr model, if your con- your your uh, construction team is making money on construction, that is a very dangerous situation. Um, you have to be dealing with a very ethical person who is going to one try to keep your construction costs down, while at the same time doing what's necessary in the construction process and also making, you know, making their margin. Um, You'd never want to incentivize someone to, to skimp on the rehab and put money in their pocket. So that's the first thing I think it's, you know, if you're running the Burr model, you need to be really careful about the way that that's all arranged from a fee perspective. Um, Two, I think, it's really important to understand like what number one a person's experience is. Is you know, there's like a lot of get rich people, get rich quick people in this industry. There has been for years because you can come into a market like Cleveland where it's easy to get on the internet and you can be an expert and you can sell these really cheap properties. And um, again, you can have the best of intentions, but if you don't really understand construction, then you're just like theorizing these rates of return, you know. I mean. Mm-hmm. they they may not be that because your maintenance costs are probably going to be three to four times what you are projecting because the renovations weren't done right. Um, and then obviously property management is just so key. Whoever you're working with, having a legitimate, licensed, experienced property management company with in-house services, in-house maintenance, in-house project management is so important. Because if you don't, you're not working with companies that have like systems, people, processes. Um, you know, the demand here has been big for years and it's really easy to implode if you don't have those things in place. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's so I've seen it happen over and over again where uh, it just like you said, with contractors, they don't have systems and they are not really tracking the money. I, I've seen that with property managers where they grow, they, they take on more clients and then they grow and they hire more people and they haven't really done their accounting and then they end up short. And, yeah. and so then it becomes super tempting to just dip into the deposits for a minute, um, thinking you'll be able to pay it back, but it's just a lot of money sitting there 
property managers are holding a lot of cash. So it, it you know, they do need to be trustworthy um, that they're not going to spend it on operations, right? Or anything else. Right. So what are some, if you were vetting a property manager today, I know you're not, but if you were, what would you, what would be the top three things you'd look for? Top three, um, years in business, probably number of units that are managed. Um, definitely like organizational chart. I think that tells a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to probably have one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you did like, I promise you if it's a one man show and you know, and they're managing several properties, it's probably not a good, you know, it's not a safe scenario. Um, and then definitely like, you know, what software, what systems are they using? Um, are they licensed? I mean, out here, you, you have to run property management through a brokerage. And I can't believe the number of people that are out on like social media and advertising themselves as property managers, and they're not licensed to do property management. Yeah. Right. Oh, really good stuff. Okay. And then, um, you know, you've mostly been a single family person and recently started to look into multifamily. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Like, are you still, do you like both? Do you like one more than the other? You know, I mean, at least out here, it's changed a lot. I was just buying in in my market multifamily and it was a couple of years ago and it was really before the prices just went crazy. Um, I really, I have shifted my focus back into the single family space until the market cools down a little bit. Um, I love holding multifamily. Um, I have sold some of my smaller stuff just because people are buying it, you know, cap rates that I never thought I'd see here in Cleveland. And it was just, you know, made sense to sell. Um, I like it as an investment. I mean, you know, my training was always like, I'm running 50 jobs at a time in single family, right? And still have to go through the analysis and um, estimating and rehab and, you know, putting a tenant in, managing it, selling it or refinancing it. And, you know, the people that taught me, they're like, hey, it's the same thing, just under one roof. Um, The financing looks a little bit different. The underwriting looks a little bit different. But as a general rule, you're doing it anyway. You're just doing it in a bunch of like scatter sites. Mm so I like it. I just haven't been able to buy anything that makes sense recently. So, and I, yeah, I know it's just, it's really important to buy those right because there's a lot that can go wrong. So. Yeah. Yeah. I went to, I actually went to a multifamily conference today with some really big players and I was super shocked. I, I think some of our listeners are going to be bummed to hear this, but on all the panels, including the lender panels, the general consensus was it's just too frothy. You know, when when these big players and, and these lenders are saying, you know, we're looking at uh, multifamily that were $9 million 18 months ago and they're on the market for 18 now and nothing was done to improve it. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. So again, general consensus was the market is frothy and multifamily. So just be careful out there. Uh, the, the number one things they were mentioning was, um, projecting that what has happened over the last few years will continue. And of course that's never, that's never, we can't, we can't know the future. Can't, no. Can't. And I think people were, you know, they're trying to justify prices and they're underwriting rents that I just don't think are sustainable. Um, so I just, you know, having been the, the, the benefit of being older and having done this for a while is, 
you know, you go through a couple market cycles and you're like, yeah, I know what this all kind of looks like. And you can kind of hedge. Yeah. Um, so whenever I start seeing things that make me feel a little shaky, I know I just, I'll pull out. Yeah. So we'll wait. I'd be happy to get back in it. You know, when the prices come down, I just, I just can't buy it what the prices are right now. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. But um, are you seeing the foreclosure markets open up in, in your area? You know, I, I'm told that there's a bunch of stuff that's coming. There's stuff that's in short sale. Um, you know, we, we've been so lucky that through all these years, we have good deal flow. Um, our deal flow recently has been a lot of um, people that are divesting. And I don't know if it's a COVID thing, you know, they just got beat up and they had tenants that weren't paying or, you know, a lot of what we see from an acquisition standpoint here are people just like age out, right? And they're in really good areas, but they don't have the capital to go in and dunk forty, fifty thousand dollars into their property and raise rents a hundred percent. And that is the majority of the buying opportunities that we've seen. It's really not been REO or even short sale. It's been tired landlords. Tired landlords, interesting. Yeah. One thing about Cleveland that is really frustrating is the the inspections the city inspections on rental property rich and i <laughs> rich just sent you an email because i know you're managing our properties um that uh you know the the city will come and inspect it if it's a rental and tell you what you need to fix so yeah, yeah t- tell us about that so that people are aware and they're not taken by surprise when they buy something and and cleveland that was an owner occupied and now a rental and now you got to fix stuff you weren't you weren't planning to do there's a lot of government intervention here, but it's only in certain cities. Um, so you're, you have property on the east side, and the east side's got point of sale and rental inspections. A lot of the cities have rental inspections, but they're like rental inspection light <laughs> versus the east side, which is pretty intense. Um, so what I would say is uh, educate yourself on the point of sale. If you're in a point of sale city, you need to understand what that means. Um, in short, it's that you cannot transfer title on a property um, the city will come out and they'll do an inspection. If there's violations, you either have to cure the violations and sell your property point of sale violation free, or your buyer has to assume the violations and you're probably going to have to make a price adjustment because of that. And your buyer is going to have to, um, depending on the city, escrow money with the title company until repairs are made. And then the city comes back out and, you know, gives their final blessing and, you know, releases your escrow money. And then you need to know in what city you're investing, what their rental inspection process is. Some of them have them biannually. Some of them, some of them have them annually. Um, most of them are exterior. Some of them are, they'll go so far as to tell you, you need to clean your fall leaves out of the backyard in the spring. Yeah. Yeah. They told us we have to uh, clean our deck. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, I, I understand, you know, the theory behind it. I do understand it. I tell people like during the foreclosure crisis, when I probably misquote this, but it was like one in every seven houses was in some state of foreclosure. You would never have known that driving, you know, the streets of the suburbs on the east side here, Um, because the city would come in and they would give you violations. And if you didn't cure your violations, then they raised the house. So it wasn't like you were driving up and down streets and seeing houses that you, you might have a house that's going for 20,000 bucks, but you didn't see boarded up windows. You didn't see, 
you didn't see what you would typically see in a neighborhood with twenty, thirty thousand dollar homes. Um, but on the other side, you know, just in my opinion, it's government overreach, and um, I, I don't necessarily think it always helps the situation. I will tell you anything that you can do upfront. So again, educate yourself and understand what that looks like. If you're, you know, if you're in one of those cities and they're going to do an exterior violate uh, exterior inspection, make sure that you take all those items and you put those up front in your scope of work for renovation. You're not always going to get everything. They're they're much like home inspectors. They will find something. I don't know because they need to justify their positions or what, you know. But yeah. a lot of it, if you're if you're educated you can put it into the rehab in the front and try to, you know, pay for those, those costs up front. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, final thoughts, cause you know, we're running out of time, but what has it taken? How has your mindset shifted since, since the days you began this business? Oh man, it's, um, that's uh, an ongoing evolvement, you know, that I'm super committed to. Um, I think the one thing that this business has done, because you know, this is a tough business to be in. It's a tough business. Um, it has shown me my resiliency. I think that, you know, there was a time that I just didn't really understand my full capability as a person. And I think that just being tested and being tried and going through, you know, what I did with three little kids and building a business and surviving all the stuff that I have, um, it's been like just a testament to my, to my will and to, um, our own like personal power. So I really, you know, I'm just committed to the involvement of my mindset and I really now lean into, like a no limits kind of perspective on things. I think I had a very limited perspective of who I was and what I was capable of. And that's definitely changed. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, you know, I've had my share of um, yeah. of struggle and knockdowns and, and uh, you know, I, I was, as you were talking, I was like, what keeps us in this business when people are ripping us off and lying to us and there's frivolous lawsuits and angry investors who don't understand how hard you're working and you know goes on yeah. and on um so what what keeps us in here <laughs> it's so addictive isn't it I just yeah I think I just tell people I'm like this is my thing I mean yeah I mean it can be extremely stressful as you said it's there's a lot of liability and there's times where I'm like, I've asked myself the same question, but I'm like, what else would I do? I mean, I love this. It's in my blood. It's the language I speak. I, you know, I eat, sleep, everything, real estate. And I, frankly, I'm really good at it. I don't know what else I'd do that I, that I would be really good at. I'd have to start all over again, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like picking, picking yourself up, learning. And, um, and knowing, knowing that there is, uh, when you do it right, there's so much profit. So when you do it wrong, you lose for sure. But then what you've gained is experience and lessons so that you can go try it again, better and better. And then you get to reap those profits, which are bigger than any other business I know of. Oh, for sure. When you get it right, when you get it right. (laughs) High risk, high reward, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, very good. Well, Kelly, you know, I, you know, I look up to you and I really appreciate um, just our masterminding over the years and, and all the ways that, you know, we've been able to work together and grow together. So I'm, you know, I feel the same about you and Rich. You guys have been my mentors for a long time and I appreciate everything that you've done for me. Honestly, you guys are leaders in this industry and um, I look up to you both. Thank you so much. And thank You're you welcome. for sharing. Thank you for sharing your story on the Real Wealth Show. And I hope I get to see you somewhere soon doing something fun somewhere. I love that. And thank you for joining me here on the Real Wealth Show. You can go to realwealthshow.com to find out more about the Cleveland area and where the best place to invest is there. And also find out about other metros where other institutional investors are not so busy. So there's not as much competition and more deals for people like you and me. And you can check that out at realwealthshow.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.